Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. I recently joined as a member, and you can too. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. When you become a member, enter Suburban Folk in the podcast that you heard about them. Today's episode is also presented by Sweat Connected. Sweat Connected is a transformative way to work out. Sweat Connected has a mission to help you feel your best. Each expert instructor brings their signature method directly to you wherever you are in the world via Zoom. When you take a Sweat Connected class, you are able to interact with your instructor and the other participants in the class just like you would in a live studio experience. Whether you have been a group fitness participant for years or are newer, you will feel at home with Sweat Connected. Sweat Connected is exclusively offering our listeners 50% off their first class by going to sweatconnected.com and using the code POD, that's POD, P-O-D, at sweatconnected.com for 50% off your first class. Sweat Connected, for all levels, all ages, all sizes, and all humans. We're also brought to you by State Bags. State Bags makes beautifully well-made, inclusively cool products while using the power of business to give back to shift the narrative around social injustice. For every State Bag purchased, State hand-delivers a backpack packed with essential tools for success to an American child in need, but their commitment goes beyond simply a material donation. State Bags has your back, and part of that commitment is making a difference in local kids' lives. To get you ready for your commute or wherever you are traveling next, State is offering our listeners 15% off their next purchase at statebags.com. Using the code POD, that's 15% off your next purchase using the code POD, P-O-D, at statebags.com. State Bags, they have your back. And finally, we are brought to you by Hugh Kitchen. Hugh is a family-founded chocolate and snacking company focused on creating products that match ultra-simple ingredients with unbeatable taste. Built on a strong mission to help people get back to human, Hugh only uses simple, real, and responsibly sourced ingredients. Hugh obsessively vets every ingredient to unite unbeatable taste with unmatched simplicity. They go beyond what is easy and expected to ensure that their products and practices are ethical and put both humanity and the human body first. All of Hugh's products are gluten-free, dairy-free, refined sugar-free, and aren't heavily processed. Use code POD for 15% off your next purchase at HughKitchen.com. That's code POD, P-O-D, for 15% off at HughKitchen.com. And find out why Hugh helps people get back to human. Health, parenting, finance, travel, and home improvement. This is the Suburban Folk Podcast. Welcome to the Suburban Folk Podcast. I'm Greg Rodersheimer, your host. Today's topic is real estate investing. Just like all investing topics that we cover, at first glance, it can seem very intimidating and complicated. We're going to take it from the standpoint of somebody brand new to the world of real estate investing. And in fact, I am someone that is brand new to this world. So come along with me to learn some of the do's and don'ts and the best way to set yourself up for success. My guest is Sean O'Toole, and he's launched a site called Property Radar. And prior to that, combining his technology and real estate experience, he 
opened foreclosure radar in 2007, well before most realized that the 2008 foreclosure crisis was coming. The service was quickly recognized as the nation's best foreclosure information source and helped tens of thousands of real estate professionals succeed in a market which was otherwise devastating. Sean's mission to help the little guy succeed in the real estate market continues with the launch of Property Radar. Thanks, Sean, for joining me today. Can you kick us off by talking about your background and ultimately what led you to developing Property Radar? Yeah, well, thanks for uh, having me on. And uh it was, a, it was a little bit of a, a journey. Uh, I started off in uh, tech. Uh, I got a computer when I was 10, learned to program, and so ended up doing three software startups in the 90s in Silicon Valley, um, streaming video and one of the first hosting companies, one of the first SaaS companies, and uh, did pretty well there. But after the dot-com crash, I met a gentleman who uh, was flipping foreclosures, wanted me to write software for his company. And I'm like, no, I don't write software for individuals. It's not what I do. But, you know, I think like everybody, I was curious about foreclosures and about real estate investing. So sat down with him for a bit and kind of looked at his business. And he just had this incredible return on investment that was super attractive. And I looked at the money I made in Silicon Valley and said, wow, if I put that to work and make that kind of return, unless I go back and land a, a Google first 50 employees at Google kind of position, I'm going to do better flipping foreclosures than I am in Silicon Valley. So I flipped 155, 160 homes from 2002 to 2005 sounds like three years, but it's actually four years. And I didn't do quite as well as the guy who taught me the business. He had an 80% return on capital. I only managed 55, but that was quite nice. <laughs> so, you know, some years were better and worse, but that's what it averaged out to be. But then at the end of 2005, I looked at what was happening in the market and I just said, I don't want to buy another piece of real estate. So it was back at a, another inflection point, like I found myself after the dot-com crash. Some of those dates that you mentioned. So 2002, I got to imagine, is somewhat at the height of the real estate market when people are presumably making money hand over fist. And you mentioned those specific returns. What is it that made you start to get a little more nervous about just the overall market in 2005. Of course, we're still a few years away from the um, ultimate downturn, but can you just talk through what that looked like? Pretty much not long after high school. I had my first software company and it failed. And my dad talked me into buying a real estate magazine in Hawaii and running it for two years till he could take retirement and go take it over. Turned out we bought it just as the Japan crisis hit. Real estate in Hawaii absolutely went into the tank, and it was a terrible time to own a real estate magazine uh, that advertised home for, homes for sale. And that really made me a student of economics because, you know, it was a great business and a great location. Everything was good about it, but it was absolutely terrible timing. So through the dot-com rush, you know, it was a great period of time, made some really fantastic money, had some nice exits. But in 1999, I sold all my stocks, probably a little conservative on that side. All my friends thought my, I was nuts. Same thing in 2005, right? At the end of 2005, I saw a couple of things. Sales were starting to slow. So that to me is like one of the first warning signs that maybe a market's getting toppy, right? Because 
fewer people are coming to the table. Prices, it takes a long time for prices to come down. People don't realize just how long. And But sales were starting to slow with sign number one. Sign number two was in the market that I worked in, the, the new home sales went from having people pre-buying homes before they even broke ground to having to give away a free swimming pool in order to get the house sold. That's a pretty big shift. And that was really worrisome to me. At that point, there still wasn't an uptick in foreclosures. I was investing in foreclosures, but you know there was pretty small inventory still. So that wasn't really a sign uh, yet. So those were kind of the two major things. Oh, and the third one that probably hit me the most personally was I usually didn't meet the folks I sold the homes to because I sold them through a broker, even though I was a broker myself. But I did meet a, a, a fairly young couple buying a house, uh, $450,000 in Stockton, California, which was considered the epicenter, right? Uh, at least on 60 Minutes. She was a maid and he was a field worker. I just went, you guys can't, you guys can't buy this house. This makes no sense. Like you don't have the income to buy this house. And they said, well, we're qualified and this is our dream. I just said, this doesn't end well. And so those, those three things led me to just say, no, I'm out. I don't want to own any more real estate. And I spent the first half of 06 selling the rest of what I had and then started building my company at the time, Foreclosure Radar, which has since become Property Radar. That last example is what I was really curious of. Did you see a Main Street example of the types of loans that were being approved? Sounds like clearly you did. That does seem like a telltale sign. And then, as you mentioned as well, the foreclosure is presumably ticking up. And then picking out another piece of your journey, talking about how I think a lot of people really would like to get into real estate investing. I, I assume a lot of the reason for you creating um, Property Radar is because of some of those barriers. Did you have any barriers when you started to get into this, just mentally speaking? And then what do you see and hear for other people and or let's say smaller businesses that would would cause an issue or prevent them from getting into this world. The big one which we tackle, right, is access to data. But the the two biggest things that are hurdles for most people who want to become real estate investors are access to good data and access to capital, right? Um, both of which big companies uh, generally have very good access to. The access to capital, there's a lot of folks, a lot of private money and hard money lenders and other folks that are kind of focused on that for for investors starting out. But on access to data, right, most of the big data companies, the title companies, et cetera, are really focused on making that data available to, to large companies. And nobody was really making it available to small companies. You know, that was a journey for myself when I started buying foreclosures in 2000. I was going down to the county recorder's office and the county's assessor's office to get data. And it was super inefficient. And I kept looking for more efficient ways to do it and where could I buy the data from, et cetera, and made improvements while I was investing. And Foreclosure Radar, which was our first application, was essentially a commercialized version of that software. I had to throw out the one I built for myself because it was single tenant and anyway, software stuff, but I had to rebuild it completely from scratch. That sounds at least what my understanding is that it seems like the information that is technically available takes a whole lot of work to get to it. And presumably the bigger the entity, the 
more tools they're going to have to have it at their fingertips. Uh, and then of course the smaller, the less is going to be available. Is there much of a difference between somebody that's investing with the intent to flip versus investing with the intent to rent it out and keep the property? Yeah. So, you know, there's a few different ways I like to think about if you're looking at becoming an investor, right? So one is I think a lot of people that call themselves investors are actually speculators. So I have my definition of kind of speculating versus investing. Investing is that you are buying the property in such a way that it's a good return on investment now. It doesn't require events to play out in the future. If you're counting on appreciation, if you're counting on changes in the general plan or those kinds of things in order to make your quote unquote investment work, I would say you're speculating and not investing. So that that's kind of one issue. Then, of course, the next one that you brought up is flipping versus holding. You know, flipping is more of a short-term income strategy. Holding is more of a long-term income investment wealth building strategy. And it's really hard, right? It's really easy to get started uh, flipping. You buy a $200,000 house and you sell it for two fifty, dollars And after expenses, you net twenty grand. That's only a 10% return. But if you do that in 90 days, you can do that four times a year with that capital. That's a 40% annualized return, right? So that's, that's kind of how I get to 55%. It's, it's like a gr- running a grocery store. It's not just about the profit on each item. It's how quickly you sell each item. The more turns on inventory you do, the better your, your business is. So that's what flipping is, is really all about. And you make this immediate income. When you buy that same $200,000 house, right, you're going to rent it out. You know, or let's say 250, well, 200,000, that's fine. You're going to rent it out. You're going to put $40,000 down. You're going to make four grand a year, right? Which is great. It's a 10% cash on cash return, right? You're getting a 10% return on the cash that you invest in, which isn't terrible. But four grand a year, right, is an awful long payback versus 20 grand in your pocket right now. So it's it's really hard to give up the, the quick uh, returns for the long returns. And I'm using very conservative, you know, safe uh, numbers. These are deals you can, you can pretty easily do every day. All the gurus talk about these huge deals. You buy something for a hundred grand and you make a hundred grand. Those are pretty rare. Uh, It's possible and they do happen. And and I've had my share, but that's not the bread and butter of the business. Maybe a little bit related to that. How much of a make or break moment is it to being the first one to grab a good property. So to your point, hopefully anybody that's getting into this or any kind of business venture or investing isn't thinking it's going to be a get rich quick and aren't doing all of their homework. But at least for myself, going back to the bigger entities versus smaller, that's what I have in my mind is their access to information and data means they know about a good deal much quicker and also how to analyze whether or not something is a good deal, which is something that really puts other folks behind the eight ball. But relatively speaking, how much of a piece of the puzzle is that sort of out of the gate, knowing for sure that a potential uh, real estate property is in fact going to be able to, to be flipped for a profit? 
that is definitely one of the uh, the hardest pieces, even with good data, right? Good data is kind of a prerequisite. You gotta you gotta have that. It certainly helps. Looking back at my 160 deals, some of my best ones I was most fearful of <laughs> uh, when I bought them, and uh, some of my worst ones I thought were going to be great. Especially, you know, I primarily bought at the foreclosure auctions, the trustee sale auctions, which is the most difficult form of investing because you have to pay in full in cash. You get no title insurance. So you have to kind of self-insure that that there's no outstanding liens that you're not aware of or things like that. You don't get to inspect the property. The owner's still in the property. You have to evict them. So it's it's by far the hardest uh, form of real estate investing. So for that style of investing, I'd say if you're not doing 10 year, deals a year, you shouldn't be doing it because... You can afford to lose a hundred grand on a deal if you did nine other deals that you made forty grand on. So it, it, it ends up uh, working out. Most folks, most of your listeners, will probably start off with you know like buying something off of the MLS, which is rarely going to be a great investment, you know, for flip or for hold. Right? It's it's fully priced. We and what our service is really about is about finding off market deals. So whether that's the foreclosure auctions or just the neighbor down the street who wants to sell and doesn't want to work with a realtor, or maybe they're um, a hoarder and you know no realtor will take their home because of the amount of work that's needed. I bought a, a few like that. I bought a, a house from a, a lady and I went and met with her and I said, geez, your house is probably worth four fifty. You know, it's really not something I'm looking at. And she goes, and she had a loan, I think for $200,000. And she's like, I've been meeting with realtors. They need me to clean it all up. I've got my ex's junkie kids here as in taking drugs coming in and out of the house and I can't keep them out. And she goes, and I just need to leave. And I need 20 grand to get to my friend's house in Arizona and start my new life. Uh, Ultimately, I relented. I kept trying to talk her out of it, but I wrote her the check. I bought a house for 220 that was worth 450 and I sold it to a local realtor for 300 and so I made 80 grand and didn't even didn't do a thing to it. it, it I sold it in less than a week. Again, right there is a great example I think for the general public because I'll raise my hand and say, yes, the path that I only am aware of available to me is going on a realtor.com or somewhere like that to see what's available and yeah, I can click on foreclosures, but to your point, I assume is presumably already going through a real estate agent or some other entity that I'd presumably be late to the game anyway. And then I'm assuming tying these couple of concepts together, if you're out in the forefront like that, it gives you a little bit more wiggle room, I would imagine, in lining up contractors. If you do need to do something to it or when you get ready to go shop it for sale, it's not such a tight margin that you're as much at risk of losing a lot of money. So that is... Yeah, one of the craziest things is, you know, a lot of people, especially I'm here in California, right, where prices are really high and returns on investment are pretty low generally, especially if you were to buy off the MLS. And so we see people, you know, go across the country to you know, Atlanta or Houston or other places to try to get a decent return on investment. But there's a pretty good chance that every day they drive by some boarded up house 
that the seller is desperate to sell and just waiting for somebody to call them and make them a, a good, you know, decent cash offer. But they don't take the time to go, oh, that house is, the weeds are really getting big on that house and it's got boards on the windows. And and we make that easy because you just click on the house and public records, the owner of that property is easily available and it's pretty easy to skip trace and get a phone number or an email address and or a social media contact and and reach out to those folks. That tends to work out pretty well for investors. So we call that driving for dollars and is definitely one of the more common ways that especially newbie investors that really want to start off and look for these off-market deals, how they often start. For the people that are going to other markets because they think they can get better deals, I'm almost wondering if there's a little bit of a risk to that not knowing your local market and whether or not something's going to be a great deal, or is that less of an issue when you're looking for these types of properties? There are companies that specialize in finding you rentals with a 10% return. And there are certain markets, Detroit, Atlanta, others that are, are kind of well known for being these good kind of buy and hold markets with a decent return on investment. But they tend to be there's a reason there's a 10% return. It's like a, I explained to my my California folks, right? If you're buying in, well, San Francisco is probably a bad example right now. It's having a rough uh, time, but maybe a, across the uh, the bay up in uh, Piedmont or the Oakland Hills or something, that's just highly desired uh, real estate. And people want to live there so badly or have it as a second home or whatever that you get a very, very low return on investment. And really, at the end of the day, that return on investment is a measure of quality. So yes, you can go to other parts of the country and get a better return on investment, but you're also getting lower quality. That's not to say other parts of the country are lower quality per se, but that's you know when folks here are leaving there, right? There's a, there's a difference. The appreciation rate over the years has not been the same in those areas as, is, as it has been in others, right? So when you look at that bigger picture, I think, and we call this cap rate, the return on investment is a good measure of of quality. So the, the, the standard cap rates in your area. And then your goal as an investor should be trying to get better than the standard or market cap rate if you were to buy off the MLS. So if, if the market cap rate is a 5%, you should be trying to find an off-market deal that pushes that up to 6%, 7%, 8%. And if you ever need to sell, there'll be equity there because you can sell at that lower cap rate, which means a higher price. That's the part that I'm kind of hanging on to as you're describing that beginning part of the process is, I'll call it a little bit of breathing room, at least anyway, that I think most people, when they look at it, they just don't see that. Now, let me also go back to your point about how quickly you can turn over a property and that going into essentially what your um, annual uh, returns end up being. I assume this gets a little bit out of the data piece because I'm sure part of it is having the right people, whether that's certain contractors or I don't know, maybe even real estate agents and so on. But any general advice for people in what they should be doing once they've purchased a property and making sure that they can get it turned around as quickly as possible? It's the old time is of the essence, right? Just take, I'm going to flip the property. I'm going to make a 10% direct return. So it's $200,000 property and make 20, you know, $20,000, right? 
if I do that in four months, I've got a 30% return on my money. If I do it in three months, I've got a 40% return on my money. Just an extra 30 days really starts to impact uh, your returns, how quickly you can put that money back in the market, make your next deal. And it has huge impacts on your total income. Even if you're just going to rent it out, the longer you ha- the longer that hold period is where you've got to pay all the expenses with no income, right? Well, you've got to amortize that really into your total cost of the property and therefore it's going to hurt your returns forever. So yes, it is a data-driven strategy in my mind, but you want to be very expeditious about getting your uh, repairs done, getting it back on the market if you're going to flip it, getting it priced right so that it sells quickly. Um, And if you're going to hold it, uh, similarly, getting that you know, your contractors lined up and your folks lined up ahead of time. If you do buy it off the MLS, get all that done while you're in escrow so that as soon as that closes, you're ready to hit the ground running. And it it, it adds up. That's that's one of the things the big guys do that the little guys don't. And, um, you know, I, I don't think everybody realizes that. You know, we've got these iBuyers out there like Opendoor and Zillow that are now buying homes directly from homeowners. They don't like to be called flippers because flippers have been kind of vilified. A lot of people mistakenly thought flippers had something to do with the crisis in 2008. I don't think that's true at all. These iBuyers tend to do really crappy remodels. And a lot of investors are like, God, these guys are terrible at what they do. But if they're getting it back on the market quickly, maybe they don't get quite the premium that a better remodel would, but... You really have to do the math there because they may actually be getting a better return on investment even with a crappier remodel. How much of an issue is it with people that don't know what they're doing and then maybe create a bad name for house flipping or real estate investing that even if you're a more reputable person in the industry, people are just sort of turned away because of that stigma? You get a lot of folks who do a handful of deals for a few years. It's not an easy business. There's no easy button. It's not a get-rich-quick scheme. They go, wow, I had enough success here. Now I can start selling the information. And some of these gurus are selling you know, how to become a real estate investor for dollars $10,000, $15,000, $20,000, $40,000, right? And we're going to teach you everything you need to know. It's really become quite an industry of itself. You know, Trump University was particularly bad. I think if that lawsuit had gone through and they hadn't settled it, I, I think that would have been really eye-opening for folks uh, how bad that education was. Even connecting what you're talking about of what the public maybe thinks of flipping because of what they've seen on TV. I'm going to forget the show. It's probably good. I forget the show. But one of these house flipper shows, absolutely the few times I have – AM radio on, it seems like one of those guys is having an event in my area and you can come to name whatever hotel it is and they'll teach you everything that they know. And and, and of course, not even just in real estate investing in a bunch of different areas. I, I tend to think, okay, if you're that good at this thing, why aren't you continuing to do that thing for yourself and you wouldn't need to be doing the teaching? And uh, certainly if you go into, I think, any particular industry, coaching, whatever it happens to be, that 
question comes up in a lot of people's minds, but I know exactly what you're talking about. And uh, at least I'll say, luckily for me, well, first I'll say, I'm glad to hear you say that because I think my intuition is correct when I hear those kinds of ads that this is probably not what I should be doing as far as an education is concerned for something like real estate investing? There are a lot of great books, you know, just down at your Barnes and Noble. I would say, you know, there's probably nothing you're going to learn in a $15,000 class that isn't in a, you know, $20 book down at Barnes and Noble. And, you know, not all the classes are bad. And some of these guys are out there really trying to help folks, but there is a lot of bad. You know, one, one of the things that we get a lot, right? So we have this, this, platform that's full of data on every single property and helps you connect the, with the owners so that you can try to buy it directly and, and the rest. But one of the problems that we really have is we get newbie investors and we're really designed for professionals, right? Not not the new investors so much. And we are used by some a lot of the large guys. But we get newbies that come to our site and they expect they're going to send mailers to 50 doors and they're going to buy a house and have a $100,000 profit. It's really quite a bit harder than that. It, it's not that hard, but it it's not just, you know, lick some stamp, stamps one night and make $100,000 either. And we get these folks that that try this and they're like, you know, your software doesn't work. <laughs> We're like, no, your, your expectations are just completely wrong. And, and if I ever develop this to the point where I can exactly pinpoint who's going to sell at a huge discount, I'm going to turn this off for everybody else and only keep it for myself. <laughs> well, that, that goes to the same point, right? Like right. Yeah, for, for, for the teaching and stuff. Well, if everybody had that key, they're, they're not going to be telling everybody else. They're just going to use it for themselves, right? And, and keep the profit all to themselves. It's really funny because there's no lack of capital. I helped raise money at three Silicon Valley startups. We raised, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And, you know, the capital is, you know, surprisingly for large deals is surprisingly easy to find and surprisingly cheap, right? So if you really did invent that easy button, come see me because I'll be happy to be involved and I can find you billions of dollars of capital to press that easy button all day long. Yeah, you know, as they say, if you're going to believe somebody with a get rich quick scheme, the only one that's actually getting rich is the person that just sold you that product is <laughs> <laughs> right. usually yeah, right. the case. Uh, otherwise there's a lot more going on to it. Well, of course we've hit on, and I know is a primary part of your site, the bigger companies versus the smaller companies. What is that comparison? What advantage out of the gate do a larger company have that you're helping level the playing field. Besides uh, the real estate investing, we also help like uh, really anybody who wants to sell to home and property owners. So like home services companies, uh, realtors, mortgage brokers, etc. And like with with real estate investors, you know, we now real estate investors are facing like Open Door and Zillow that are coming in and and trying to buy homes directly as well, right? So that's kind of their bigger competitors. It's like Facebook was a great place to advertise for small business early on, but then big companies got better at it, kind of shoved small companies out. Same thing with Google early on. It was a great place for small business, but big business kind of shoved, you know, you know search for, you know, what your neighborhood real estate, right? And chances are Zillow, Trulia, Redfin, big companies that get inserted in there. So- 
as a company, we're really focused on helping these small local companies reach these the, the homeowners and property owners uh, directly so that they can build a relationship and hopefully that local uh, customer comes directly to them instead of going through one of these big companies that's, you know, really destroying small town America. Are there any other types of entities you mentioned like realtors and so on? I guess, are there any other companies that we wouldn't think of of in the middle of that transaction that would also be using the site? Oh yeah. So um, a lot of home services companies like solar companies, roofers, uh, swimming pool contractors, uh, our customers, like our investors, our realtors, our mortgage folks, one of the things that they all have in common is that, you know, when you sell somebody a home, you don't sell them another home next week. And if you think about those types of businesses, they're on this really difficult treadmill of constantly needing new new customers, right? And these are the businesses, though, that give to your you know, little league teams that do the highway cleanup are integral parts of small communities. Some people might accuse us of helping, of our helping those small companies spam by figuring out who they are and, and finding contact information for them. But if you think about how important those local communities are, I would encourage you to allow that spam and think about your neighbor who needs a new roof and referring them because it really is the backbone of America. And right now, and really from both political parties, right, small businesses is being assaulted. Exactly. And I was going to say, gosh, in what we're going through right now, I would think people would certainly get on board with that concept. The example that I give, this was pretty early on in the lockdowns, at least, but not so early that my family wasn't completely afraid of traveling. We just went to the beach. We're not that far from like the Outer Banks. And on that ride, when you go through these small towns, nearly every single restaurant that looked to be sole proprietorship, you know, unique to that town was either closed or even in some cases boarded up. The only ones that were open on the way down were your chains because of course they have that larger backing. And uh, gosh, we won't even go down the route of <laughs> what happened with the loans that were meant for the small businesses and how that got all twisted up <laughs> with bigger companies that are masquerading. Uh, that, that's probably too harsh of a word, but as a small company, but still qualified in, in taking that money. So I, again, I would think at this point, if people didn't necessarily understand that idea or the value of locally owned based businesses. Hopefully they're coming around to it at this point. So I at least um, applaud that sentiment. And I think it is you know, definitely uh, worthwhile to level the playing field however you can w- against you know, the bigger companies that have more means than others. And those, those bigger companies too, they're probably not only open where the little guy isn't, but they're also probably not paying their rent to that local investor that owns the building where the little guy, even though he's closed, still is. I saw that happen. I own office, industrial, apartment, etc. The only tenant I had problems with was a billion dollar, you know, what what the banks call a credit tenant, right? The banks all want you to, all your tenants to be credit tenants. And of course, the only one that is, uh, you know, threatening not to pay me and, and the rest over COVID is the national credit tenant. And 
everybody else is like, hey, you know, we're, we're, we're applying for PPP. We're going to we're going to keep making our rent. It's important. And I'm like, it's OK. I'm happy to work with you. Even for the little experience that I would have in that world, as you're describing that, I remember one instance with a company that I used to work for where we were uh, moving remote for work. Uh, there was a guy that was responsible for the rent payment and made some comment of, yeah, it kind of has bounced around between the corporate office and us here. And I think they did get an overdue letter. So uh, even, even in my limited experience, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I think uh, that one company that I worked for probably was one of, one of the people violating uh, what, what they should be doing. So we've talked a little bit about the individual investor and maybe what they could or couldn't do in this world. Uh, and I think that probably there are people like myself that look at real estate investing and are really interested in it. The more standard route is straight stock investing. As you talked about, it, it is probably pretty tough for an individual person to do this actively on their own rather than, let's say, getting with an investment group and uh, sort of pooling money together that way. But high level, if I'm an individual, how should I be viewing real estate investing versus stock market investing? We talked about flip versus hold and speculating versus investing. There is also passive versus active. Like I was just talking about that, you know, a local investor probably owns the building that your Starbucks is in. And so, and that's a very passive investment. That can be a very long-term 10-year lease and you just collect payments and you get a certain return on that investment. Unfortunately, these credit tenants tend to pay, well, they tend to have a lower return on investment. So it may be a 4% return or something. So you might go, well, you know, the stock market, I think I'd rather take my chances there than a 4% return. So here's the things I like most about the real estate markets. One is that they move fairly slowly, both on the up and the down. You don't get these wild swings that you get. Let's even just talk about 2008, which was terrible for real estate, right? And nationally, we only saw a 20% drop in prices over two years for 2008. Now, certainly there were areas like Stockton, California that were much worse, right? But um, compare that to the Dow that fell 40% in six months um, over the same crisis that was a housing crisis, right? So, or recently here with, uh, you know, COVID, the Dow in one month fell 35%. So you don't see those kinds of swings, especially as you're nearing retirement, can't really afford a 40%, 35%, 40% loss. The nice steady returns of real estate can be a nice, uh, a nice alternative, uh, certainly better than you're going to get in money market accounts or other you know, less volatile things in the, in the stock and money markets. So that, that's number one. You know, number two, and this, this really doesn't, it appear to be much issue, but like, you know, Tesla, uh, beginning of this year issued $2 billion in new stock. Well, that dilutes your ownership and you have no control. So when they issue new stock, then you suddenly own less of the company than you owned the day before. So, you know, there's no dilution, right? You own the property, you own the property. It's, it's just that, that simple. The biggest one for me is, is transparency. We see enough of these, uh, 
shenanigans with the books and the rest. And I think the filings that are out these days, there's so many ways to to hide and and bury things. The stock market's definitely speculating to me. So let's say you buy Apple stock, right? So they have a price earnings ratio, which you can think of of like around 35, right? And you can think of that as so if I invest a hundred grand into Apple, right, that price earnings ratio of a thirty-five means that they're, you know, there's earnings of two dollars and eighty-five cents. And if I had a four percent return on a piece of real estate, I get four dollars for every hundred dollars every year. If you look at that price earnings ratio right now for the Dow, it's thirty-five. That's a two point eight five percent return. But of course, Apple only pays a 071 percent dividend. In real estate, you actually get all the earnings <laughs> of what you paid for, right? In the stock market, you you don't, you may not get any. And so it is, uh, the stock market to me is just pure speculation on appreciation. And that works until it doesn't. And it's worked for a long time and it perhaps could continue to work for a long time. But I don't care what happens. If I own real estate, I can probably get something for it, right? Even if we go into hyperinflation, somebody wants to live in my house, uh, you know, I'll take uh, eggs from their chickens or something. I'll get something. (laughs) You won't necessarily get anything on the other side. So I I really like uh, real estate. I do think it's a, a much more transparent, much more direct, although a little bit more active for sure form of investing. And I think it's much safer over the the long haul, especially in a crisis. I also wonder if it fits what people end up getting used to with their day job and receiving a paycheck a couple times a month. And I'm comparing this to buy and hold and renting, but I think almost to an extent people can maybe more easily wrap their head around receiving a rent check which is somewhat equivalent to their paycheck that they have gotten you know year over year as they've been a, a full-time employee as compared to there are definitely a whole lot of additional rules and so on as far as selling your stock and of course the tax implications and obviously that is there too with real estate uh, gosh I know a few of the rules just to be dangerous <laughs> for when I rented out a, a house of mine but Again, I feel like the most equivalent would be, let's say, a dividend that's getting paid from a, from the stock market. The dividend would be the definitely the equivalent, and the market's moved away from that, right? I think you know, fifty years ago, you probably could put money in the stock market and you know, and get that paycheck in the form of dividends. It's because it's still possible today. But the other parallels, I think, you mentioned early on about somebody having to purchase one property and literally your eggs are in one basket, depending on what happens with that one, as opposed to being able to do, I think you said the number was 10 deals within the year so that they're essentially. Well, that's, that's for that highest risk form of investing at these, these, you know, foreclosure auctions where you get to do no research. But for most people, you find uh, the folks down the house, down the street with a boarded up house that, you know, We'll make you a good deal on it and you can rent it. And, you know, let's just say ideally you'd put 20% down. So you put some cash down on it, right? You, you'd have some cash reserves in the bank in case it doesn't go rented for a little while, right? And, you know, maybe, maybe uh, let's say it's a, a $200,000 house. You put 20% down, 
that's $40,000. Try to get a 10% return on that. So you get four grand a year on your $40,000 investment. You know, I, I think that's, that's pretty doable, maybe even off the MLS. And, uh, you know, that's a, that's a nice, uh, that starts to be a, a pretty decent uh, return, even compared to the averages on the market. And again, if nothing else, where I was going with that before is, I think no matter who you talk to, diversification is key, I think, in nearly any investment. And so if real estate investing becomes part of your portfolio, that's an additional way that you've become diversified. So at the very least, you're covering that box that you would hear from, I think, any financial professional. So let's go ahead and move a little bit to future looking. We've talked a little bit about what's going on, which of course is unprecedented in our lifetime. I think that people probably still have some scars back from 2008. I know I do. <laughs> I managed to come out pretty unscathed, relatively speaking, but there were some worrisome times there, again, stock market as well as in real estate. But what do you see in real estate right now, then in the near term, and then let's say even in the long term for how the markets may start to react? I think we're going to continue to see interest rates go down. Not in a straight line, but I think I predicted that during the next crisis, we'd see uh, interest rates, 30-year mortgage rates in the twos, um, which of course just happened. And I think after the next crisis, because there's always a next crisis, right? We will probably see mortgage rates, 30-year mortgage rates in the ones. We're already seeing 15-year mortgage rates in the ones now. And what that means for real estate prices is that they're likely to continue to go up. We have a debt problem in the U.S. Talk about modern monetary theory and lots of stuff here. But basically, we can't have interest rates go up because then we go into debt even faster. And uh, there is so much corporate debt, student loan debt, uh, kind of debt across the board that we've had. And we've really had this debt-driven economy since the late 1970s. And there's no easy way off of that. And there's no chance. I don't see any chance that we have the political leadership to lead us out of that. So that means we will continue to go into more debt and interest rates have to go lower, which is bullish for, for real estate prices. How far into the future are you thinking? Just foreseeable, don't even want to <laughs> predict when that may change? It's really hard to see, right? Probably some sort of change of world order where we're no longer the world's reserve currency. Um, in terms of you know mortgage rates taking that next big step down, it'll be the next crisis, right? So you know we seem to have a a housing bubble, a dot-com bubble, a COVID, a something, you know, the World Trade Center, something every five, 10 years or so that uh, kind of kicks us in the teeth. Let me pose this to you quickly of like, if that would be the expectation that rates will continue to be that low. And if I am someone new to real estate investing, I would imagine that means if I have a certain amount of money to put down, it would make more sense for me to, let's say, buy a couple of properties and take on as much mortgage as I can for those properties because the interest rates are so low as compared to just buying one property with that same amount and putting more down uh, total wise. Is that the correct thinking or would there be a reason not to go that route? 
Yeah, I think that's roughly correct thinking, but there is a reason not to go that route. I, I personally use very little leverage because, you know, I do think at some point, uh, you know, uh, things go uh, particularly bad. And, you know, and when they do in 2008, those folks that were highly leveraged, you know, pretty much lost all their assets, right? Both the creditors and the debtors took a pretty bad hit. And, but those folks that own their assets free and clear of very, very little leverage, right? Um, fast forward today and they didn't lose a penny through that whole crisis. You do want to be careful with how much leverage you take just to make sure you can make it through any crisis. So use lots of leverage if you still have cash to make it through a crisis and think about how long, you know, a 2008 or a COVID crisis might be, you know, it might be a year. So do you have a year where if you got no payments, you can still pay that underlying leverage? Then absolutely use the leverage. If you can go two months, I'd be pretty worried about that, right? We've had uh, with COVID, we had eviction moratoriums and the rest, and you could easily see yourself out six months or a year of income short term. You know, in the end, nobody's forgiving that uh, those rents. Uh, none of no government entity yet has forgiven those rents, so people are still supposed to pay you back later. But um, whether they do or not, it's a whole other whole other story. So, you, you, you know, take take the leverage, but do so with enough cash to to make it through a crisis. Yeah, that sounds like good advice. And just like the whole future looking could be a whole episode, I'm sure diving into the rest of the factors that would potentially go into that could likely be another show as well. Well, uh, Sean, I'm going to let you go at this point. Of course, for folks that want to learn more, it's propertyradar.com. Sean, if folks want to get a hold of you or the company, can you give any other contact information, maybe where people can find you on social media, any other promotions or events to let folks know about? Yeah, I'm on Facebook and uh, Twitter and LinkedIn, all three. And uh, just look for Sean O'Toole and Property Radar. You'll find me pretty easy on all three of those uh, platforms. I also answer questions on our community at community.propertyradar.com. And uh, of course, we've got our main website, propertyradar.com, the About Us page and the rest and contact uh, there as well. So any of the above work. Very cool. And of course, I'll put all of the information into the show notes so it's easy for folks to get a hold of you. Sean, again, I appreciate you being on the show and we'll be in touch. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or all other major podcasting applications to be notified of our latest episode. You can also join our conversation at suburbanfolk.com or any social media site, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the handle Suburban Folk. Thanks for listening.